0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation, here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, I'm Richard Grinch. I'm the host of The Defining Conservatism, series which can be found at the Herd at Heritage podcast. I'm delighted today to introduce Luke Sheehan, assistant professor at Duquesne University and author of Why Associations Matter, The Case for First Amendment Pluralism, and he's also the editor of the University Bookman. Luke is here to discuss his new paper uh, for the Heritage Foundation called Restoring Civil Society. Luke, welcome so much.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: So, look, your paper, Restoring Civil Society, is uh, a long essay on this crucial realm of our society between uh, the individual and the state. And you say at the beginning of the paper, the first sentence, in fact, associations do not just enable self-government, they are self-government. Maybe talk about that and help us understand what, what civil society is and why it matters so much for human freedom.
1: Well, I write – I begin this essay with the line associations do not just enable self-government. They are self-government because we hear a defense of civil associations in the civil society realm uh, often in terms of what it does for our political order um, rather narrowly understood. So uh, people who are active in civil society institutions tend to vote more uh, to be uh, more law-abiding. These are good things. Uh, But that's not the real crux of why associations matter. Uh, Associations matter, and I say they are self-governments because... Most of our self-government takes place through those civil society institutions, starting with the basic institution of the family. Uh, so you know, where do we learn uh, something as basic as self-control? So self-government at a very basic level, you learn it mostly uh, from your family. You're taught uh, what not to do and what not to do, uh, what to do, what not to do at a very early age. Um, and as you grow older and you become uh, you know, a more mature part of your family, a part of your local community, a part of your church, a uh, part of all the other associations in our society, including educational associations, uh, you, uh, you make decisions with your neighbors, with your friends, uh, with your family members, uh, with those uh, with whom you interact in important ways that have important um, – uh, I guess you might say authoritative – uh, weight in your life. So it's it's actual self-government. You're deciding what to do, what sort of education you have, your children have. Uh, I have a friend who uh, founded a school with three other couples. Uh, they weren't happy with the educational options that were out there. And so they made decisions about the education of their children. That's self-government, even in a, over a, the sphere of how their children will be educated and what sort of people they'll turn out to be. So the civil society realm is incredibly important. It's really where the crux of of self-government is, and this goes back a long ways, uh, really ignored part of our constitutional history, is in the early townships. Uh, so we often talk about uh, colonial government and uh, the conflicts with London between the early American colonies and and, uh, and then the uh, tensions between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. But the, uh, the unspoken uh, background here is that Uh, Many of the early Americans were devoted to their churches, and they were devoted to their townships. Uh, So it wasn't just that they disliked London, they also disliked Boston, Uh, and they were much more interested in what was going on in their small town in western Massachusetts. And there's kind of some funny uh, stories that come out of this. Uh, uh, Each town would send representatives to Boston and Massachusetts, colonial Massachusetts, and uh, sometimes they would elect A representative to be sent to Boston, and then they'd also uh, elect somebody else to go along and make sure that the first guy voted the right way. Uh, So there's a a very real sense in which uh, the crux of American society was at the local level and at the uh, the, really the associational level. The people where the people you interacted with on a daily or at least a weekly basis were what really mattered for self-government. So I
0: want to think about this In a foundational way, too, um, and, and you've, you've been discussing this, you say people are first and foremost social beings, um, members of a social bond. How do you know that? Why, why do you say that? I mean, I think we think about, you know, we're individuals, we're autonomous, we want to have things our way, express ourselves, uh, be who we are, have it our way. What, what, what is all this social being stuff?
1: Well, this is a, a long, kind of long-standing statement going back at least to Aristotle, who calls uh, human beings are social beings. It's often translated political beings. So I think a, a better translation is as social beings at, at core. Uh, Robert Nisbet, the great conservative thinker and author of The Quest for Community, writes in his 1970 book, The Social Bond, that uh, that – Human beings are, from literally the moment of conception, part of the social bond. Uh, so we come into existence literally from a, a basic social bond of, uh, of the family. Uh, how do we become socialized? Uh, it's through the family uh, that we kind of adopt and are learn the kind of fundamental human um, aspects that make us uh, communicative beings. Uh, there's some interesting research that has come out recently about uh, the human capacity for reason and that we really don't have the ability to reason uh, in any meaningful way um, unless we can um, interact with other human beings. Uh, So we only really reason in uh, communion with others. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Why did Plato uh, write in terms of dialogues? Uh, Because I think Plato understood at a fundamental level, that's how you have to reason. You have to have interlocutors. It's just the way it works. And if you look around you, uh, you don't see – Nisbet makes this point – you don't actually see uh, individuals from a certain perspective. You instead see members of families. You see citizens, uh, residents of towns, citizens of the United States, citizens of our states, of course. Uh, You see Presbyterians and Catholics and Jews and Muslims uh, and, uh, and, uh, members of the humanist, uh, association, you see all these sorts of things. Um, so we are kind of at our heart. This is what we are. We're social beings. And if you think hard about all your viewpoints, um, including your individuality, um, you'll recognize that you are, um, as an individual, you're at the a pinpoint of a bunch of different associations. What do you believe and how do you act and start thinking about your parents, your grandparents, your siblings the schools you went to, all of these social bonds and all these social groups that have shaped us, each of us individually, to be who we are. And it's kind of an interesting thing if you think about uh, individuals that are the most uh, individualistic uh, and so truly kind of stand alone and have the strength uh, uh, to stand alone. It's usually because they're firmly entrenched in associations and uh, what we find when we find individuals are people bereft of associations, uh, historically, and even if we look around us today, we don't find strong individuals. What we find are people who are kind of racked with anxiety, um, trying to join one group or another. Uh, so there's kind of the old joke uh, – I came of age in the uh in the 90s and and uh the goths were always kind of mocked because they wanted to go their own way and uh, but of course they all looked alike right they all dress alike yeah. they all look alike <laughs> you kind of can't escape uh that you need an association to be a part of when you're trying to be an individual
0: talk about because I think this is also very you know, you're, you're presenting as a social being this is a an aspect of human nature, an embedded aspect of human nature. Uh, But social being and association, associative life is also very American um, and is also something that, you know, gets funded by the government now, co-opted by the government now, used, eclipsed by the government in certain respects. You you quote Robert Nisbet, the, the famous scholar from the 1950s and 1960s, Uh, He says, government is the primary force in it all. Such government weakens normal social authority as it strengthens itself through laws, prohibitions, and taxes. Does government view the social aspect of man, something that it's in competition with?
1: Yeah, so Robert Nisbet uh, writes very famously in The Quest for Community uh, that the state uh, tends to grow in power and strength at the expense of our associations. And, uh, and what he has in mind here is a, he's, he's writing 1953, that's when his book comes out, but he's looking at the sweep of Western history. Uh, whenever you see the strength uh, of the state growing, what you see are Uh, the dozens of social bonds that are non-political institutions, Uh, churches primarily, but also small townships. So think in terms of um, medieval history, the small townships, um, even social class, uh, the guilds, uh, the church, all of the, uh, the various orders within the church, uh, they recede in terms of function and authority whenever the the king uh, starts to claim divine right and expand his own power. He does it at the expense of all of these associations. And so uh, Nisbet writes you know, extensively on this topic, most famously in the quest for community, but taking a look at the, at the damage that that does, and so sometimes we think of the state as perhaps uh, an essential institution, which, which it is uh, from a certain perspective, and one that can... Uh, grow up alongside of or out of these other associations. And what Nisbet's great insight is, is that isn't true. It doesn't grow out of those associations. It isn't an extension of the family. Uh, what it is is something that has grown in opposition to the family, and this is true historically. Uh, why did the Roman state really solidify? It did so at the expense of the Roman family. Uh, why did the, uh, the Greek polis rise and uh, become what it was? It did so at the expense of the kinship groups in Athens, uh, at the expense of the religious um, beliefs in Athens, at the expense of the uh, local kind of tribal communities in Athens, and so on. And so historically, we always see this. Now, there is an aspect here. Uh, the political order obviously is, is essential from a certain perspective, but it really matters how you, how you approach it. Do you see the state uh, with a capital S uh, is growing um, at the expense of these associations? Uh, when you see the state doing something, does it need to elbow out these other associations? Does it need to bring the allegiance to itself at the expense of these other associations or is it something that can exist alongside them? And So how we approach our constitutional order, for example, from these two perspectives very much matters as to the type of programs that we're going to have.
0: It would seem for you know, dominant forms of progressivism from the French Revolution on, the point is to have really two, two entities, uh, man and the state, and, and that's it. And then the state sort of engineers man or engineers his consciousness in the direction of... Uh, greater egalitarianism or social reform, economic reform, those things. Um, whereas the the Burke vision, uh, the more traditional forms of Anglo-American conservatism is in the opposite direction, is to allow social nature of man to flourish. Um, those things just seem fundamentally at, at odds with one another. Um, and and I, I like what you say. It's these things are displacing. the growing, Growth in government displaces other things. I mean it seems one way to think about that is as we look at the relationship between uh, public schools growing and the number of services and functions they offer vis-a-vis the breakdown in the communities around them. Not that necessarily the schools cause the breakdowns, but they've got to in effect pick up the slack or try and rebuild and replace those communities and the things they're not doing and they can't.
1: That's right. Uh, that's that's uh, another one of Nisbet's key insights is that uh, the structure of a particular community or the structure of a particular association, including the state, is only good at certain things. It's not going to perform other functions particularly well. So the structure of state power, for example, is great at certain things. Uh, it's much better at prosecuting wars, for example, than as, say, religious organizations or the family. Uh, neither of those things have been particularly good at at prosecuting wars. Uh, the state is pretty good at it, and it can be good at other things too, uh, but it cannot do what the family does in terms of socialization. It can be an aid to it, but as virtually I think everyone knows – uh, the public school systems that are the most successful are, are ones where the parents are really involved. And so uh, even with all our all we understand in terms of education and uh, educational psychology and child psychology and all of this, uh, we cannot engineer our public schools to do what families do. Uh, so if parents, no matter how uneducated, do by and large a much better job with their kids uh, than do than does um, educational bureaucrats, and it's not the bureaucrats' fault. It's it's that the structure of state power is such that it can't do what these other associations uh, do. And so, it's this is kind of an interesting interesting thing when we talk about um, a public policy of civil society is that the impetus for civil society has to come from civil society itself. Uh, so, how do we? Uh, craft a public policy that encourages the growth of civil society institutions and helps them to thrive um, without sapping their power, without it being the state taking over functions and elbowing these other associations out of the way.
0: As one part of the problem, civil society, you're necessarily living with the status quo. Um, You might be improving it or reforming it, um, but many people are opposed to that and look to government to engineer new, a new social order, uh, definitely a new political or a new economic order. And can you stop that? How, can you stop that by just talking, by trying to just protect civil society? You you write that there's you know there's economic freedom, uh, there's political freedom, but there also should be this realm of civil society. Conservatives give a lot of nods and. Uh, applause for the idea of the freedom of civil society but you argue it's first and foremost
1: that's right uh, so we, we tend to be uh, and this is again keep going back to Robert Nisbet but his, uh, his brilliance is almost unsurpassed in the 20th century uh, he talks about the uh, imaginative hold of the state in our in our minds in our imagination so when we approach politics and we talk about politics, uh, we want to talk about it just from the perspective of the state. And we're kind of all enthralled in that way of thinking, even if we're conservatives or libertarians. And even if we talk about limited government, we have a hard time seeing uh, the social realm for what it really is and how fundamental it is uh, to us as human beings. And that it really ought to be come first. Uh, so sometimes we speak instrumentally about our civil society associations, um, but we'll, we'll speak about the state as if it's intrinsically valuable, and these associations as if they're instrumentally valuable. And it's kind of the other way around. Uh, the state is instrumentally valuable to a number of things, but it's the in these civil society associations that we get to the real heart of human goods, uh, the human good of sociology, the human good of... Uh, of uh, uh, Sociality, uh, the human good of uh, religion, um, it's in those civil society institutions that they happen and you need a broad swath of freedom in that realm, uh, because you can't dictate from the top how those associations should work. Uh, They have to really be governed from the inside uh, to determine precisely how they're going to play out in people's lives. So you need the realm of interaction between the individual members and their associations to be as free as possible so that they can play out in the way they need to.
0: Have you you thought about maybe just a contemporary question for you? Um, Have you thought about what happened in this country the last uh, two years, after the COVID lockdowns and the masks and schools were shut down? I mean, if if we think about your claim of sociality and social groups being first and foremost uh, a way we develop ourselves, then what you you can start to think about a range of pathologies that have enveloped this country since those COVID days of 2020. In that you know. Did we, Or did we just get really angry and full of anxiety uh, and tension when we were separated from one another and suspicious of one another in that separation as well? Because we had no way to come together and mediate those things uh, in face-to-face communication or, or in groups.
1: I think that's exactly right. Uh, so uh, I think it was we all know uh, – Personal face-to-face interaction is essential to uh, uh, civil interaction. Uh, so it's a lot easier to uh, to uh, say nasty things online uh, when you don't have to face somebody. When you face somebody, it kind of changes the dynamics. And I think there's a lot of research on this, and I think we all know it anecdotally. Uh, so when you have the these lockdowns where we all put in a position where we're all only online with each other, that was the only interactions we have except with our uh, with our you know, whoever we live in our house with uh that oh man uh it, it's kind of difficult to um exaggerate just how damaging that is to our social environment, and I think as we've seen we didn't uh we didn't bounce back uh so you know church attendance is down um I was kind of hoping that uh with uh with that those lockdowns we'd kind of we all missed our associations and it would kind of give them a real new lease on life uh because we'd all be kind of really uh roaring to get back. Back in 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 our associations and back in face to face interactions, and I think to a certain extent, uh, we did see that. So uh, I, I kind of yeah. felt like yeah. in the educational realm, uh, there you know we kind of got to see. Um, Everyone go online and for online education, it turned out uh, it was you know something close to an unmitigated disaster. And so we realized that that's not the future. Uh, we just can't have that. Um, and I think we really got to see that. Um, and so I think there's going to be, hopefully that that does plot uh, for us, uh, shows us a little bit of the way forward. We've said for a long time, these face-to-face interactions really matter. We had them all taken away from us. Uh, boy, did we realize we were right.
0: Um your scholarship also focuses on the Constitution and civil society, and the ways in which our Constitution does or needs to. You know, we need to think more about how it uh, can protect civil society organizations. You mentioned one clause, which is uh, the freedom of assembly clause in the Bill of Rights. Um, talk about that clause and what it might offer protections for civil society. And I say that, you know, one of the biggest Seems to me sources of uh, tension uh, or undermining these associations comes through sort of increasing expressions of individual preference and the demand that a private group should actually recognize and affirm you, or you can sue it and shut it down.
1: That's right. So uh, we have the assembly clause in the First Amendment, and the Supreme Court has done uh, close to nothing with this clause. So I think, as everyone knows, um, it, the the Supreme Court has really kind of honed in on a number of, of clauses in the Bill of Rights, especially the the speech clause, for example, and did you know it you know an okay job of of unpacking them. I could quibble over some things, uh, but one thing it drops is the assembly clause. It just doesn't do anything with it. It incorporates it against the states in 1937, and then it doesn't develop it. Uh, and I think the reason for this is that the uh, the Supreme Court, along with uh, much of the rest of our um, our political institutions, don't appreciate the realm of civil society, and that that assembly clause, among some other clauses, is aimed at protecting civil society. Or to put it another way, uh, when our founders drafted those clauses, they had in mind civil society. They took it as a um, kind of a given. Uh, so when they were when they were debating in the first Congress the wording of the First Amendment, and they're talking about the assembly clause, uh, there was a, a Mr. Sedgwick from Massachusetts actually wanted to strike the clause from the First Amendment. And the reason he wanted to do so is not because he didn't believe in it. He did. He thought it was so obvious it didn't need to be put in. He thought it was it was just too obvious. Uh, of course you have to assemble with other people. Of course you have a right to. And he says that's like saying you have a right to decide whether or not to wear a hat in the morning. And then he's – his opponent uh, in this debate, uh, John Page from Virginia, responds and says, well, uh, it is true that it's obvious. However, there have been uh, men who have stopped from assembling and have been forced to take off their hats when they were in the presence of authority. So it's a great example. This is a tiny historical footnote there of having to take off your hat when you're in the presence of authority. It's a reference to William Penn, who was arrested in 1670 because he was assembling with his fellow Quakers in England, uh, and he was arrested under an, uh, basically a, 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 the Conventicle Act, which forbade the assembling of uh, uh, religious dissidents uh, for more than uh, for uh, more than five people. Um, he had. Of course, more than four or five people. He was arrested. And when he went to court, he refused to remove his hat. Uh, So it was this great uh, kind of historical footnote there. Uh, But notice what he's referring to. He's referring to a group of Quakers. He's not referring to a political group. Uh, He's not referring to, uh, you know, a political party. He's not referring to uh, anything that we think of as connected with politics. Uh, So William Penn was going to meet with his uh, fellow Quakers. He was going to preach. And they were going to, you know, care about each other as as fellow uh, religious uh, adherents. Um, That was an important and always has been an important civil society institution, uh, religious organizations. And so what the assembly clause is aimed at is all of these, um, right? It's actually separated from the religion clauses. Uh, So the free exercise clause would also aim at this protection uh, for religious groups, but non-religious groups would be covered under the peaceable assembly as well, as long as they're peaceable, which is a um, a fairly easy uh, easy target to, to hit but the Supreme Court has done nothing with this when it talks about freedom of association it talks about it in the context of the free speech clause and uh, while that's uh, you know helpful for associations that are aimed at expression it doesn't tell us what to do with associations that aren't and those fraternal associations are incredibly important to all of us and to all of the functions they carry out in our lives. Uh, but the Supreme Court's jurisprudence at the moment uh, just simply fails to fully recognize the breadth of that. And I think you're right when you say that uh, our kind of individualism and the individual kind of demanding to join an association should override the authority of the association uh, to keep out people um, that would undermine it or that don't belong there. Uh, so I, I, in my book, I discuss this at length and I use some examples. I think of, uh, I'm not Catholic, but if there's a Catholic group, it would make perfect sense that they would exclude uh, me, even though I'm very friendly to Catholics, uh, because I'm not Catholic, I would undermine the group's purpose, I'd undermine its cohesion by being there. And so that's really important. That aspect of exclusion is really important for the group remaining uh, remaining cohesive. And this at the first case in the modern jurisprudence for the court on freedom of association was the NAACP. Uh, think what would have happened in the 1950s, and this case came down in 1958, if the NAACP couldn't exclude. Uh, individuals who didn't believe uh, in the purpose of the NAACP, and that, by the way, that case came out of Alabama. Uh, so, what would have happened in 1950s Alabama if if the NAACP was uh, forced to include people um, who disagreed with the group? And the, the particular circumstances of that case was a demand for the group to turn over uh, their membership list. So that is. Does a group have the authority to decide whether or not to disclose its members? Now, fortunately, the Supreme Court said, yes, of course it has that authority. That group will decide for itself, who it lets in, it will decide for itself uh, whether or not it says who's a part of the group. I think that's absolutely the right decision. And uh, we would really miss something if we didn't realize uh, the importance of associations for that self-government. They know best who belongs there. They know best uh, uh, what to do to fulfill their function.
0: It seems to me I mean, uh, also the case, you know, freedom of assembly s- lends itself to the thought of protest, um, to protest against government socially or in a group setting. Um, is that the way, is that the, that's one way to think about it. It seems to me the Supreme Court also seems to be willing to ex- to give greater protections to groups that have sort of an expressive purpose um, versus a non-expressive purpose But, of course, your analysis says, like, well, all groups are forming people, shaping people, making them citizens, things like that. That's Um, right. How – so when you look at the case law, does it break down along those lines? Um, uh, How should it be developed?
1: Yeah, so the reason I think that a non-expressive group should be protected is that they're, you know, the, the free speech clause is great, but it's a separate clause from the assembly clause. And so it seems like the right of peaceful assembly would be much broader. And it would include kind of a right for expressive groups, of course, but also a right for non-expressive groups. And for the reasons you said, all of these groups are formative upon the individuals that are part of them. In fact, uh, a big reason we join groups is so that they can form us in a particular way. If you're part of a church, you joined it so that it would shape you uh, to be a particular type of Christian or a particular type of religious adherent. Um, And that's what you're after. That's why you're there, is that you'll be shaped in a particular way. Uh, So uh, we need to think about what sort of protections ought to be required um, under that assembly clause. Again, the federal courts have not done a good job with this at all. Um, So it's been actually decades since the Supreme Court has even talked about the assembly clause, despite uh, hearing uh, numerous cases that where it should have come up, um, in 2021, uh, Justice Thomas, in a concurrence, did mention the Assembly Clause. So I'm hoping that's you know a foothold to start making our way back in and talking about this important clause. And I think policymakers should really think about uh, what they can do uh, at a legislative level and a policymaking level uh, to really prioritize civil society and the protections for civil society.
0: Um- Another context of this debate is the government um, making threats from time to time on philanthropy organizations, which is a way, say, of funding civil society or, or helping it uh, or, you know, uh, finding ways to give aid to people through private associations. And, you know, there have been attempts at various state governments. Uh, bills have been filed, if I'm not mistaken, the federal government level to say, you know— your tax exemption is actually a government expenditure. You know, to the degree you're tax free, it's because we're being nice to you uh, in effect. And you question that, it, it does seem to bring in uh, into play that you know, our money is the government's unless they give us a dispensation. Uh, talk about your approach there. You don't think tax exemptions are government subsidies and it also seems to reveal a crucial aspect of the social nature of man
1: yeah, that's right. So uh, the way we talk about uh, uh, tax exemption is we act like uh, the government's entitled to the money, uh, and uh, it is chosen uh, for its own purposes to grant tax exemption. So it says, uh, it turns out that you know religious organizations are pretty good at shaping citizens. If you're involved with a religious organization, you tend to be uh, you know less violent, you tend to uh, vote more, these things like this. Uh, so we're going to give it a tax exemption. this is kind of the way we talk about it. Um, and the Supreme Court has referred to tax exemption as a, as a government subsidy in a, in a few cases. Now, I think that's wrong, and I think a better way to understand it is that when our legislatures pass tax exemption laws, what they're saying is they're saying that our civil society institutions actually take a priority. So if your church says, uh, you know, we expect you to tithe 10% of your income to our church as a member of our church, what the government's saying is we're going to let you take that off the top. And the reason we're going to do that is because that association and your membership in that association takes priority over your membership in the state. Yes, you're a citizen. Uh, Yes, you need to pay taxes to support your government. Uh, But we will take that cut after the civil society institutions have taken their cut. Uh, Because they come first. And so yes, the the, the state is passing this legislation, and we have to have legislation in place to explain how this stuff works out. Uh, But there's a very different uh, ethos that comes along with this. When we say uh, the state is out of uh, the goodness of its uh, collective heart is going to let us uh, keep some of our money to give to civil society institutions, uh, because it for its own purposes wants to encourage that. And the state saying, actually, those civil society institutions come first your membership in those institutions comes first. And we're going to figure out a way that we can take a step back and let the, the priority there um, be with the civil society institutions. I'm reminded of a of a, an episode from, I think it was the reign of Henry II. And what happened was uh, an abbot died in this this abbey, and a new abbot was appointed, and he offered to the king to kind of turn over the The property for this abbey to the king. Well, the people who lived there uh, didn't like that, and so they objected to it. And it went to the the king's court, and this great line comes out of it. Um, And the jurists say, you know, the king says, "No, I'm not going to take it." And what he says is, um, the king neither wishes nor dares to enter into the ancient realm of autonomy of this abbey. And it's just. Extraordinary line, the king neither wishes nor dares, and I think we should see our our laws on tax exemption in the same way. Um, Our democratic government neither wishes nor dares to, enter, to interrupt the membership of its citizens and other associations. And so when we have these laws, we should not see them – we should never tolerate um, our, our, our government um, threatening to strip tax exemption um, from organizations unless they're you know, doing something criminal. Uh, but if, they're, if it's anything ideological, philosophical, uh, whatever, that should be something near sacrosanct uh, because it's coming out of the civil society realm. And we should recognize the priority of that realm – over the political realm, and so you our laws on this subject are, are okay um, there's there's some points for improvement um, Philip Hamburger, uh, one of our finest constitutional uh, scholars, uh, wrote in a book in uh, 2018 called Liberal Suppression. Uh, he talks about the tax exemption status and how a lot of the laws and caveats we have around tax exemption actually arose out of members of Congress trying to suppress criticism of themselves. So they're getting criticized by these by mm-hmm. these groups. And so they write laws uh, that uh, kind of restrict the speech rights of these groups. And you know, you get a tax exemption status, that's fine, but you can't talk about candidates for office. Oh, wait, a they literally wrote that in so they wouldn't get criticized. Um, and it's incredible, like, incredible story. That's It's completely unacceptable. And so we should really look with suspicion upon uh, restrictions put upon tax exemption organizations.
0: Luke, I think that is a great way for us to end. We've been talking with Professor Luke Sheehan about his new heritage essay, Restoring Civil Society. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Defining Conservatism conversation on the Herd at Heritage podcast. Please subscribe and share.